Hey, welcome to another episode of Selected Pros. So first of all, thanks everybody who came to KGB Bar last Thursday to hear me read and host and to hear Tom LaPlage and Ali Robottom, Bud Smith, Michael Bible, and John Lindsay share their work. It is really great to have met some of you in person. Thank you to the person who baked a loaf of bread. Uh, the bread was delicious. And it was especially delicious considering that it was created with ingredients foraged from a public park. So um, good job. Um, I'm speaking to you from my apartment in Brooklyn. The Omicron variant is ruining all the fun. Uh, I basically just sit inside all day with my wife and my dog. It's what I did yesterday. It is what I am doing today and it is what I will do tomorrow. So if you find yourself bored or inspired or frustrated or ecstatic, shoot me an email at selectedpros at protonmail.com and tell me something, uh, anything about the podcast or about your writing or about whatever. I always love hearing from you all. So cure my boredom. Uh, and if you'd like to stay up to date on the podcast, just follow me on Twitter and Instagram at selectedpros. And if you like or do not like or even hate the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Alrighty, I am over the moon about this episode. I interviewed the brilliant, hilarious, extraordinarily talented Mark Leidner. Mark is a poet and a fiction writer and a film writer and much more. I've read two of his books, a fantastic collection of short stories called Under the Sea, published by Tyrant and Returning the Sword to the Stone, a poetry collection from Phonograph Editions, and each of them filled me with joy and made me laugh hysterically and provided me with a sense of closeness to the great mystery that is life. I don't know what I'm saying, but I just love them. I love Mark's work, and if you haven't read him yet, I would suggest that you do so immediately. Uh, links in bio as always and yeah enjoy this interview thanks for your continuing support and uh, here is mark leidner start with movies no i started in in writing poetry okay. and uh i went to grad school for that and um where'd you go i went to university of iowa studied poetry and then i went did another mfa at um umass amherst and studied fiction so i was i was very far away from doing any film mm -hmm. um for many years and trying to write all other kinds of things. And um, I guess I kind of got, I, I started, I realized I love movies and uh, started going to see a lot of movies and writing about movies, um, like writing movie reviews. And I think one year me and my friend, Hannah, she's a poet. We, we went to like 70, 70 something movies in the theater and we wrote about them all. And 
I learned a lot from that, trying to just define in, in exactly what I hated or loved or what one thing would have made this movie better or would have saved it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and after after doing all that, I kind of had a, a, a self-confrontation where I was like, you think you're so smart, you know everything about movies because you've watched a bunch of movies and have written about them. Well, why don't you write a movie? Why don't if you're any good, why don't, if you know anything, you ought to be mm-hmm. able to write one. I, I think that I, I would love it if every critic tried to um, write or create the art form that they are, are really fun, you know, are invested in critiquing. I probably wouldn't, nobody has time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but at least that was something that I wanted to do because I really loved like the, my love of movies had like hit a wall because there were certain things about movies that I didn't understand because I'd never made one. And, um, and I started, I had all these ideas about what must happen on the other side of, on the making process. And anyway, I was in the mood of trying to write screenplays and wrote many bad ones. And, um, randomly some guy on Craigslist, I saw an ad, he was like, I want to make a short film. So I met up with him and, he made a really bad short film and then two years later he had he had formed an ad company and made some money with his partner and they wanted to make a feature and they were like he, he remembered me and was like I liked we didn't make anything good but I liked working <laughs> with you do you want to like try to write this feature so we did that over the course of the summer we I met these this director and producer and um, in the course of one summer we wrote and shot and edited our first film which is on amazon and it's called jammed but oh jammed i thought you were talking about empathy inc and i was like there's no way you, you did that in a in a summer <laughs> no that was our second movie like you know four years later at, okay that was much more the first movie was a product of like pure um pure ambition and zero um experience understanding or even intelligence we were just like we're gonna do it Mm -hmm. and we had no idea what that meant i'd never written a film before i never worked with other filmmakers before i'd never been on a set and i was the second ac on that movie so i had to like do all these things there's a bunch of crazy stories where like you know i almost lost these like thousand dollar lenses and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. You know, Mm -hmm. there's all these protocols, but on a movie set that I had just never had. So um, that's how we got started. And that that process of that first movie was so painful and Mm -hmm. um, that it took several years before we were willing to try it again. But that time, the the second time around with Empathy Inc., we we had a much more defined idea of, of what filmmaking meant, what kind of movie we wanted to make and that sort of thing. I'm pretty interested in this idea of like writing about movies and thinking that you know what is going on behind the scenes and like how it could be better and stuff and then trying to do it yourself. What were kind of some of the revelations you had once, what what were some things, you know, some moments where you were like, oh, this is how that works. And, And so now I'm like, now I understand why every movie, you know, why certain movies failed in this regard because you know something's technically difficult or whatever certainly well the, the number one lesson that i learned on the first film that we made was that movie making is extremely difficult it's it's not it's i think 
especially for independent movies, but probably, you know, I think film is kind of like, um, I don't, I don't know what a big budget movie is like, but I imagine it's just as hard or just as much pressure or, or so much more pressure that it becomes more difficult, even if physically you're maybe a little more comfortable. Um, but at the lower end, it's like physically grueling in a way that I was not prepared for. 16, 18 hour days of shooting. Very long days, you know, very little sleep and um, the stress, the tension. Uh, you know, it, I think one thing that really I also didn't understand before I started making movies is that it's kind of like, um, it's a really stupid analogy, but you know, like in, in World War One, there's all these countries that are like kind of in these entangled alliances and and like if this guy goes here you got to go here and then next thing they're here so i remember reading this history book that was about world war one where it was the guy was trying to explain how like no individual country in the entire like european theater wanted to go to war but they had to like they had to decide they they when they decided to make the decision once you make the decision you can't stop and because to stop is going to like invite disaster and like you, you, uh, whatever. So, and if nobody me, else is stopping, you know, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so, so everyone has to stop or no, or no one will stop. But once you decide to go, it's like a one year process to that you've committed to it's a, it will be a year or two before you could even stop mm-hmm. because mobilization is such a big expenditure and film on a very tiny scale is very similar i think in that like once you've started you've got to go a hundred miles an hour every single day because every moment you're burning all your money up and um it's unlike it's unlike all other forms of writing or art that i've ever done where oh it's not going so well let's take a break and like we'll look at it tomorrow with different eyes or like we'll put it down and do something different and maybe in a year this will be we'll have new perspective Mm -hmm. so it's like from the very moment you begin the stress goes up to 100 the resources you could just see them draining in your mind in the spreadsheet in your mind and every time you screw up there's a there would be it's like another reason that you want to stop and but you can't so it's like every mistake means you have to go further it's a weird thing where you failure Mm -hmm. means you must go forward and um all your decisions are baked under that heat so now when i look at movies that i hate or that i am disappointed by i'm like i'm much more forgiving than it used to be because i just know that like the intensity of the decision making process um on every level, crew, money, schedule, the business side, the the creative side, it's like it's like a million spinning plates. Um, so it kind of demystifies the whole thing. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. <laughs> I hate it. I <laughs> I I told I told my director that I work with his name's Udidia. He after the first film, I was like, I am never doing that again. And so and four year, three or four years later, we made Empathy Inc. And it's, and I even, I think Empathy Inc., I was very proud of it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we finished, I was like, never again. Just, it's too hard. It's not worth it. I don't care if this is the, it's not the greatest movie ever, but I don't care if it is, it's not worth it. Because Interesting. Even if it, so even stressful. if it, 
even if you were it was the next dune you'd be like i'm out <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> that that's an interesting analogy it invites me to to critique dune which i'm not going to do but i haven't you um, know what i haven't actually seen it but uh <laughs> but i'm waiting but it's unlike a it's unlike a poem where if you write a great poem i mean at the end of the day i don't think it, it either the the work you put into a poem is so abstract and you can't remember all the work or the out even if you put in years and hours mm -hmm. you don't remember it it doesn't feel like it was brutal. It feels like it was, a to me, it was like a pleasant memory to remember writing a good poem that I'm proud of. Even if it was a poem about pain, it's like the reward is so high relative to, to what you've cost. Whereas film, I feel like you, you, you lose a year or two or three of your, of your life. All your free time is eaten up and you, you feel like you age 10 years. And so you're just like on the phone for mm -hmm. seven hours a day talking about minutiae with different people and like argue you find yourself arguing for tiny tiny things you're like no it's got to be this way and here's my 17 reasons why and and then you're like why am why do i care why <laughs> why am i trying to push for this so for me it's, it's I like i love the writing mm -hmm. i love story development i love thinking of ideas and and structuring them and trying to improve them and trying to create a great script that is the part i like and everything else i really i i'm either not good at it or i'm okay at it but i really hate it mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of like i have to forget the pain to want to do it again yeah well then you'll have to give yourself some time maybe <laughs> some yeah. more time but um so so your first book of poetry was beauty was the case that they gave me yes okay and so was that when you were at iowa no that was a few years after that um, okay well i just I'm, I'm really interested in your development as like a, a poet i guess as somebody who's in an mfa program now and i know a lot of people that like I talk to think about it or whatever. I'd like to hear about your kind of like early years as a poet. And what did you learn at Iowa that you don't think you could have learned on your own? It's a good question. I think if the, one way to think about it, I think like what you're suggesting is what if you hadn't gone to an MFA versus what if you do, what is the difference or what was the difference for me? Yeah. Um, just for you. I mean, I know people debate it, but it's not, I don't want to do the whole MFA debate, but just in terms of, who you were as a poet and did you feel like you grew or or you know how did it change the way you look at poetry it certainly validated me trying to write poems just to be in any program that offered some financial aid so it felt like uh when i i think i i, I liked writing i like writing anything i didn't really care what i wrote poems fiction i mean it was all kind of garbage when this was in college and then um i wanted to i wanted to go try to i wanted to go to a school where i could somehow get paid to be to be learning more about writing mm -hmm. and um when when someone accepted me it was a big validation for that and i wouldn't have done it i, would, I wouldn't have pursued i don't if i did pursue writing it certainly wouldn't probably wouldn't have been poetry or it probably would have been 10 years, you know, I probably would have said, you know, what, I got to get a real job. And, you know, I'm just going to go do that. See, see if I, if I really love writing, I'm sure I'll keep writing something. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to pour myself into that art form. And, um, 
uh, Iowa specifically, I thought, and I'm, I'm not really an authority because it was the only MFA I'd ever been to, um, I thought it had a really diverse group of poets and writers that I got to kind of meet with and be challenged by. So, you know, there was people writing kind of like pastoral-esque, modern, simple, like simple in a non-pejorative way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, farmy poems. There was people writing, you know, 18,000 word like blitzkriegs of your like linguistic brain space where you're just like i don't even know what a single thing to do with this or mm -hmm. there's people <laughs> writing little wispy lyrical like modernist nuggets i don't know every everything that i could imagine at the time felt like it was all there um and that's just among the students so that really exposed mm -hmm. me to a lot of different ways to write and um i think that was very big I met a lot of people who were like, you know, I like you, but I think your poems, eh, they're not so they're not for me. And here's what I think poems should be. And then I'll be like, huh, that's not, you know, that's not how I think. And then, but maybe it should be because I really respect this person. I really like them too. So that push and pull of like social, uh, the desire to want to impress people that you admire socially or like personally and then seeing what they're writing and thinking, Oh, where does that come from in this person that I'm relating to, or that I, I want to be friends with, or that I'm best friends with mm -hmm. um, that constant questioning of what are they writing? Who are they? What am I writing? Who am I? What could I write that I haven't? What could I be as a person that I'm not that, that little like pressure cooker uh, of a social situation of a social scene of a, group of people who have to hang out and have to read each other's work I think that was um you know you, I feel like I learned at light speed what I what might have taken me um you know 10 years instead of two years to learn or 20 years or never to learn and but that again I think that's just me a lot of people really hated that experience that kind of overlap of social and um and poetic or art and life kind of like being inspired by friends and like worrying about what your friends think about your work yeah. and all this stuff. So it, it doesn't, not a lot, not everyone responds well to it. And um, I, for whatever reason, really enjoyed it. I really loved it and took a lot from it. Um, but I'm also kind of like, I, at that time in my life, I was very social. I just, I felt like I'd been released from like a, cage when I got to grad school and I, I from college to grad school I'd, college felt very stifling and um, grad school felt very liberating mm. um, that specific things I learned from from like faculty and friends would be uh, one of my I think the more difficult teacher I had who was like the hardest on me was a poet named Mark Levine and uh, he I was, I was really, I think I had one minor skill when I got to grad school and that was the ability to be ironic and like absurdist, funny in a, in, in a one dimensional, like I could be absurd. I could put absurd things down on a piece of paper and like make it seem like I thought they were serious and important. And um, this, this poet, Mark Levine was like first workshop I had with him. It was just, he, I, I turned in like a two page poem 
and he kind of just did a very close reading of the first three lines of this much longer poem and it took like 20 30 minutes he really went into like literally every single thing communicated by every piece of language in those first three lines and everything that happened in those first three lines was only one thing was happening it was a kind of glib irony and um and he at the end of his like 20 minute like breakdown of these first three lines he was like and this is why I don't really need to read the rest, because I know if I'm a close reader, I know from these first three lines that there's only one thing going to happen here. And so I would bet that that's the only thing that's going to happen for the rest of the poem. So for me, although I do like irony in some ways, you know, it's like he was he was like, I need more. I need more than just this. Um, now, if I'm wrong and there's more that things happen in this poem, then let me know. And, and he was not wrong. It was, it was very much, um, he, he had like diagnosed it very accurately. And he, he then went on for the rest of the semester to kind of like hammer this, his sort of private vision of not private, but like his particular vision of what a good poem does. And he was all about the image, how to make an image. What is an image? this point he was like mark you're very funny or maybe he probably didn't even say that he was like mark some people think you're funny <laughs> but um what you're certainly not good at is creating an image that is interesting or enduring or re rewards continued reflection so that became my obsession and um i was trying to learn to do that and it took many years before i feel like i got a little foothold in it and it, it also took reading other poets um the main one that really influenced me on that was chelsea menace whose images are very um uh they are ironic often and they're very biting and they're very vivid and visual but also disturbing and cutting and gross and uh, acerbic and um flamboyant so um that was just one example where a teacher really challenged me in a very confrontational way, but in a way that I thought was completely appropriate. Um, and it was, it was a little painful mm -hmm. to sit there and take it. Uh, but it ultimately changed everything I think about poetry. And I don't think in a limiting way, in, in an expansive way, because I particularly, and I respond well to um, that kind of provocational instruction. But now, you know, not a lot of people do not. A lot of people um, find that, you know, they, they really that turns them off or makes them feel worse about their writing. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like an approach that works for everyone. Um, but and that's not the only way that he taught. I think he was doing that to me because of who um, he had accurately read me to be as this glib ironist. Or he and, saw or he saw hope in you and a particular hope in you. And he's like, I don't want you to hide behind irony for your whole career. You have potential. No, I, I think he probably would agree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he was, a, he was a, my thesis advisor after mm -hmm. that. So it was like, we, we really had a good relationship and still do. Um, would you, this is really hard and it's hard to probably pull off the, off the top of your head, but when you're talking about like image, you know, I guess because I'm more familiar with short fiction and I would think, you know, you can you, you you've got a couple of images, you develop them through the course of the story. They maybe they relate to a theme or something. But like, what is it? What was it like for you? What, is, what does he mean? What does he mean by what was his version of like an, an image, you know, and how do you cultivate that in a poem? 
Uh, it's a good question. And it's, I think it directly relates to fiction. Um, and I think the short answer would be just description in fiction is just describing a scene so that you are physically located in the character's perspective of wherever, whatever they are, whatever they're doing. Um, it's much more about, as it pertains to fiction, it's much more about scene and uh, what do we call that? It's not it's not interiority. It's the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I forget what the, the word for that is. But um, in poetry, to me, image just means mm, something that that turns on the visual or sensorial, the auditory, the touch, the the smell, anything that relates to the five senses. Um, so, like you know, a rock encrusted with moss is an image, but uh sadness is not an image mm -hmm. so things like that um veer, pushing you pushing i think he was trying to push us to toward the concrete and sensorial language um does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah it's like um particularity is not i think when you're starting to write is not the default mode it's it's a lot easier to be like Bob was sad and, and, and kind of talk about feelings generally, but when you can, when you can elicit the feeling and the reader based on the image. Um, Precisely. Kind of yeah. And I think that's sort of like, you know, that's boilerplate, you know, workshop instruction for probably every genre, you mm -hmm. know, um, every, everyone teaches that I think, or often at least you teach that to undergraduate writers. Um, and so to take it to the next level, for example, there are ways of describing things, um, whether they're real, like if you're imagining um, describing someone walking through a room in a fiction, in a story, um, or if you're in a poem and you're describing something that is not real, but imaginary, you know, like a, a monkey dancing on a globe, like whatever you're describing, something in the sensory realm, um, there's there's static description and then there's like cinematic description so things that involve motion um i think tend to have a a, a slightly bigger visual or emotional impact than things that are still um things that have narrative tension baked into them mm -hmm. um things that have lyrical tension or glue in the in the words that paint the paint the picture so those would be ways to push the imagery into a richer, more, you know, something you can experience more as the reader. So I like, I, before we talk about returning the sword to the stone, because I, I, uh, I read it and really enjoyed it. And I, uh, I have a lot of notes uh, here or like Mark, I've marked it up quite a bit. And, and so, um, but before we do that, I, I kind of felt like, in you know what what the hell do i know but reading it i felt almost as if you the author were sort of bad like a theme of this was kind of like battling against irony dealing with irony in in a way where it's like we're all aware that we're using it as this tool to kind of like not directly deal with maybe like more human issues that's that's the take that i had from it and so when you tell me that mark levine was like this is just glib irony the whole time I'm really interested in in how you got out of that and and kind of also just like what irony means to you and, and how you've been thinking about it throughout your career. 
Yeah. Um, is that completely a, wrong about the completely book? Right. It's okay. Completely right. It's completely right. As far as I know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, right. Um, but that that's just, yeah, it just seemed like a recurring theme. It's certainly a theme. And um, I think of irony as somewhat in, inescapable mode. It's sort of like my birth state or like my consciousness is is bathed in it or was formed in it somehow Mm -hmm. and um like a lot of people's and uh i don't necessarily think it's bad but i do like the idea of pushing through it and seeing where you get to on the other side um and transcending it i guess and um i don't think that's really anything new or different it seems to me like a theme of all literature since the beginning that i ever that i've ever read so um it feels very like okay i can i can deal with that i'm not like i'm not doing any i'm not writing anything special here i'm just uh i think this is just a normal way to live a human life and has been a normal way to live a human life forever which is to use irony to escape the the bitterness and the pain and the grief and the sorrow, but to, um, and then, but, but then to risk becoming trapped in it, like a fun house mirror hellscape. And um, what can you do from within an, a sort of ironic consciousness to burst out? And I guess it's to uh, keep searching for form, for meaning that, that is uh that you love more than irony or that you're willing to die for more than your precious um jokes and your your armor that they give you so yeah i think it's a good reading and i hope that um you know sentimentality is like the i feel like a a bad poem that does this would be like irony 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 sentimentality like a kind of uh unearned or like cheap or glib sentimental just like burst at the end Mm -hmm. um and i'm certainly guilty of that on certain at certain times but uh wanting to do more than that you know i think i think i think a lot of poets can get to that and understand that like that you can have irony and then try to move through it. And then, so I like to stack the deck against myself sometimes and give myself at such an ironic position that it seems impossible to find anything valuable in it. Mm. Um, or, or, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, but, but, but in general, I think your reading is makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, in the title poem, and first of all, congratulations on the book. So let's just let's just talk about it, I guess. So it was published this year. When and and when was it published? Earlier in the year, right? February. February. So congratulations. How's how's everything been with with that? Is it exciting? That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I love the, I like the book, and I I was very honored to be part of Phonograph. They they're relatively new to making books. They've been mm-hmm. making records and like recordings and art stuff for a while but um i got the opportunity to like work with them and um got to choose the designer and uh i love the way the book turned out and and people have been nice about it so <laughs> well, no complaints <laughs> at all yeah there's just like a refreshing amount of humor in it 
I don't know how common that is in the poets that you read, but you find a way to like, for the poems to be simple, lyrical, meaningful, and funny in a way that I feel is, is rare. Um, do you find humor to be kind of like a, a common thing in the poetry that you read? Common element, or is that kind of set you apart or, or something you're trying to do differently? Um, I don't think I'm different than, I don't think I'm doing anything very special. I think there's many poets who are as funny. If I'm funny, there's certainly poets who are funny, as funny or funnier. Um, but I don't necessarily read those poets. You know, I, I, I like, I like when other people make me laugh, but I really don't, I don't like reading a poet who's funnier than me. Cause then I get, <laughs> I get jealous and I'm like, Oh, what, why can't I be this complex? You know? So there's, I like to read poets that are, um, different than me. Usually mm -hmm. like, poets that really I'm like I, I'm a god I would never I would never want to write anything like this but I, I can like steal something cool from it or like it can open up some door for me that I hadn't thought of um but a there's no shortage of funny poets um but maybe they're hard to find I don't know um it poetry is it's it's weird because if you know of a if you know about a poet it seems like they're easy to find. But if you've just, you just happen randomly have never encountered their work or no one's ever said their name or retweeted their funny poem into your feed, then mm -hmm. you will literally live your whole life never knowing they <laughs> exist and might never think no one's funny in poetry. But if you're looking for funny poetry, I don't think it's very hard to find. Um, but I think very few people are out there looking for it. Um, and and I think regardless of poets who are officially published, whatever, you know, poets with a capital P, there's certainly millions of funny people on Twitter and social media and uh, everywhere. Just people are funny mm -hmm. and their writing is funny, too. And they just don't put it into a package called poetry. Um, but I think you can as a poet who if, if a poet wanted to be inspired by funny writing and what makes something poetic. I think there's a lot of people on Twitter, for example, who are poets without that name or without that mantle, and you could find tons of inspiration through them. Um, but there's also a million funny poets in in like antiquity or in mm -hmm. in all in all the old dusty old text. I mean, <laughs> with with if you read them with a little bit of a a little bit of mercy um, for how old the language is or something. Um, they're very silly and excoriating mm -hmm. and full of ironic anger and whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's my answer. Well, yeah. I mean, I just, um, the, the one in the title poem, returning the sword of the stone, I uh, it's, it basically is uh, a, a sort of like a barrage of similes um it's like sisyphus making direct eye contact with, with you while sarcastically kissing and licking the boulder and there's some others i really like uh uh but it, but it, it has that form of it's like a password you have to remember but that gives you no access to anything um and and it and that kind of it's like very repetitive in terms of its delivery but these are all these like 
extremely interesting images. And I was just kind of wondering, like, when did when did the idea to to put put a poem in this sort of like barrage of similes come into your head? And what was that? What was that like? Because in a lesser poet, I think it would be maybe exhausting or something, but I could read these all day. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, every single line was so different and so refreshing, but they all had the same form, which I thought was really interesting. Well, thank you. Um, that I, I was very insecure about that poem. And uh, so I'm, I'm always happy if someone reads it and likes it and thinks it's well done. But that <clears throat> two things, I guess, is that uh, for a long time, I would always try to write longer, like, quote, normal sized poems, you know, a third or two thirds of a page or whatever that looked like they go in a literary magazine. And um, I just I never can string together. I, it's very hard for me to string together a longer thought that feels like it has value throughout the whole thing. Um, but I was always good at like I could come up with one line Um and and then Twitter um, at some point in 2008, I think Twitter began and it kind of like was it was a place where you could now you could have a place to dump one line at a time and it could it could be its own self-contained thing. And that kind of fed that part of my brain that was already like that. And but I still didn't know what to do with them in terms of putting them into a poem. How do you get a bunch of like, you know, how do you get 500 random maybe individually okay lines to cohere into a, a flowing shape that feels like um, as artful as other poems do. And uh, some point around there, I started dabbling in collage, uh, just making collages. And it, it sort of was, it was a separate I, a thing I was doing. Um, and but after a year or two of doing that, I realized that this is it's the same problem, collaging physical images together that don't belong together or that were not intended to be put together um, is very similar to collaging uh, individual lines. And um, once I started thinking about it like that, well, I asked myself, well, what makes a good collage? To me, what makes a good collage, at least the ones that I was making, was really specific pieces that look that, that look great or that are in individually interesting and then putting them together and finding the right relationship. Like how far apart should they be? Um, should they be on top of each other? Should they be overlapping or should they be separated? But, but like looking at each other. Um, so it, I had, I developed this theory um, that was like, if you have a bunch of really individually working pieces and you just find the right order or arrangement, you will create a good collage. And what really helped, again, was this, this poet who I mentioned before, Chelsea Minnis, and her poems are essentially this. I mean, she, she was definitely the first person that I read who's wrote poems that began, it's like, it's like, it's like. So she'll often do long poems of lots of similes where the, um, first thing that it's describing is either cut off or really far away so that we don't know what the it is um, or you forget what it is um, so you know I kind of just was like well she can do it that way that seems like a smart way to collage great images together and it makes sense with this 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 physical collaging um, analogy that I had so the rest is just um, 
it's like a brute force trial and error um five-year seven-year process of uh oh i come up with a new line where does it go will it will this will this make a better first line should i move that second line down where does it where does it kick this one out and often you'll have this one really great line that you really love and you're like trying to keep it in the poem and and it, it's just it's it's too unique or it's so good or it's um what it's doing is too different and you're putting all these other lines around it to try to make it sing or hum and then you realize it's just doesn't fit you can kill it if you kill that darling then the three that are left behind they're not as individually strong but they flow better mm -hmm. so it's like i think the the list poem or the collaging poem whatever you want to call it is often a process of prioritizing flow over like individual superstars it's like a basketball team that has no stars but that can work together will often beat a basketball team that has like three great stars that just is dysfunctional or inefficient or something so mm -hmm. some of those lessons yeah take take over yeah that makes sense i i i, I mean I didn't spend enough time with it to try to like really understand or no, nor do I know enough about anything to try to really understand like why it worked. But I guess it is sort of like as the reader, it is, it is or, or as a viewer, it's, it's just like seeing a collage from a distance that works and, and not really, I don't really necessarily need the, uh, it's like right before you die, a 30 second ad you can't skip. Like for me, I would do anything I could to highlight a line like that in the poem. Um, and yeah, it's interesting how you, how you just sort of feel it out and see like whether it flows, you know, I don't know how you make that decision, but it's, it's a bunch of little things. Like um, if two lines come in a row that are too similar that you can't do it because it so won't be sound wise or thematically or in any sort of way, either one, yeah. either one. So often, um, yeah, like some of the, you know, if, if, if you write jokes all the time or you make jokes on Twitter all day, you find yourself going to the same well of form or content over and over. And sometimes you get two really good things from the same well, and you definitely don't want to put them right next to each other if that makes it feel a little redundant. You know, if you're going to have two of the similar jokes, you got to spread them out. So it's often like spacing out things that are too similar um, or or what's another one like different tones some of the tones of these images end in doom some of them end in hope some of them have a tone of utter like silliness mm -hmm. you know so you you don't want to be like you know paint by numbers like doom hope silly doom right. hope silly <laughs> doom hope silly you want to keep the to me what makes it when it's effective you don't know where the tone is going and there's just enough overlap to be like kind of feels like the same tone but if you veer suddenly into two into doom you might veer out of hope and then back into doom so you it's i don't think it's it's not like i had a spreadsheet where i was naming all these tones but i do think that um that'd be really disappointing mark <laughs> if you're, no. if you're like yeah i have a i have a spreadsheet believe me it's, <laughs> it's not far from the truth like i've been known to try to like systematize things that should not be systematized <laughs> but um but at the end of the day you're going to go over this list 
of individual images or collaged items mm -hmm. probably 10,000 times over the course of five years. So you don't really have to be scientific about it. You will very slowly get to know which three lines always click. They always work no matter where you put them. These guys are always going to go together. And then you kind of like know where your problem lines are. Like, you know, if you, if you work on it for long enough, you get this very intimate understanding of where parts in the poem are weak, where, where it's working. And you don't have to be so systematic if you just casually revise at a slow pace over the course of years. And you can just go by feel at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a, a lot of this, probably through through your history as a writer and maybe education is is an intuition, a, a lot of intuition at this point, which is probably where we all want to get at some point. For sure. I never get in. I never get comfortable, though. I guess I'm just always trying to I'm always trying to systematize something or like, yeah. like, like kind of like crudely force a, a new skill into <laughs> into like uh, expertise. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, I hope that I, I think that as you write, um, or at least for me, what I, what has worked has been to try to learn new skills in a more systematic way, whether that's practice or experimentation and then reflection, um, while you hope some of that is embedding itself into your intuition. And so the things that are intuitive to you, to you now are more deeply are more deep than, than what was intuitive to you years ago. And mm -hmm. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, I had a, a great teacher and friend once basically tell a, a class of fiction writers that, you know, fiction writers need to read more poetry. Uh, and I actually don't know that many um, people who are simultaneously fiction writers and poets. I mean, I know that they're out there, but, I'm super interested in what your poetry has done for your fiction because your 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 stories you, your stories do you just said earlier like oh I, I, it's hard for me to kind of follow a thought for a long period of time and uh, but your your fiction is extremely cohesive and the stories are rather long I'm talking about Under the Sea which is this wonderful collection from from Tyrant but uh and and so I'm just very curious about how you know your your education and your experience as a poet impacts your fiction writing. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, the here's one way. I'm very confident that um, that my sentences will at least be kind of like, if if not lyrical, at least fun, or I can like be silly or lyrical that's, that's something that i think is true in my poems or it's like a mode i'm comfortable in and i feel like i could i can write prose that has a kind of ironic ebullience or kind of lyricism and so i'm when i'm in when i'm in fiction i'm in what i'm insecure about are character setting plot and structure things that are like the larger structural shapes of fiction that is not in poetry, but I'm not insecure about, um, I don't think I have the greatest sentences in the world, but I do think that they are, I know how to be funny and playful and readable. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and I think where I, I tend to screw up in fiction or not, I'm not, not as good as I want to be, would be the bigger structures of character setting and plot. Um, so I think fiction, <laughs> 
the part of poetry that I bring to fiction gives me a little bit of confidence that I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. um, in, in certain part in the small like language level. But I also, here's another reason. Here's another thing that I think that poetry has taught me that is relevant to fiction. I think when I was in, remember when I was talking about in grad school and the, the, I was being bombarded by all these poets who, who wrote things that were very challenging and being asked to read things that were, you know, I never wanted to read because they were so dense and laborious mm-hmm. and, and like full of theories and whatever. Like, um, so I think grappling with that in poetry um, kind of opened my mind up to um, more interesting ideas what is an interesting conflict what what is a what's an interesting philosophical problem um and when i'm in fiction i like to tangle with those problems like um i don't know like existential despair what do you do when there's no purpose to life but you're still alive you're supposed to just end it or keep going (laughs) not doing anything valuable like in a weird way, like grappling with poetry really forces you to think about that because it's like the ultimate uh, poetry to me is like the ultimate act of uh, futility, but also beautiful and valuable in its utter lack of any market value or any seeming apparent like social value uh, compared to other things you could be doing, like saving people's lives or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so as a poet grappling constantly with the question of what am I doing with my life, um, trying to put that into characters who have more interesting lives and positions or maybe are insects or are mm-hmm. um, drug dealers or are whatever. Um, in that way, poetry as like a portal into philosophy or, um, or of existential inquiry and processing is is made my fiction richer and i think it my fiction would have been a lot more one-dimensional without it mm-hmm. like you ever read these thriller like i really like um you know thrillers and murder mysteries and kind of like genre fiction is really what i like to read the most but many of them are just one-dimensional in a very frustrating way it's like this guy never is like he's like i'm gonna get that bad guy and that's kind of like the only thought he has in his head or um I feel like there's a lot of like popular thrillers that are the characters are just there's a very there's a very easy and not interesting question at the heart of the story of like is it good to be an alcoholic or not you know mm-hmm. or <laughs> it's like the que- the the moral inquiry is really lacking in in a lot of I think fiction so I like fiction that has complex moral inquiry mm-hmm. and there's no easy answers and uh, poetry kind of taught me that that was worth exploring or Mm -hmm. that language can explore it i guess yeah yeah no that makes sense and i uh i know i would love to talk to you about avern y6 because it's your story about uh uh from the perspective of an insect it almost like opens up like um it almost opens up like a farewell to arms or something (laughs) from a bug perspective um but i i absolutely adored the story uh 21 extremely bad breakups and and that to me was like uh i guess what you're kind of talking about where 
you know, in a very humorous way, you are exploring kind of like futility and love and, and stuff like that. But that story had so much, so much in it. And I just like, I would just love it if you could tell me like a little bit more. I just want to read the opening line because I, I, uh, I laughed so hard when I read it. But uh, <laughs> okay. 21 extremely bad breakups. Uh, two colossally idiotic people who have been dating for years finally get sick of each other. So they decide to break up. But they're also afraid that if they do, they won't be able to find anyone better. So they make a pact to have unprotected sex every day for a month. And so this couple goes on there. They, they uh, decide that if they get pregnant, they'll stay together for the kid. And then there's these other it's just a great it's like this kaleidoscope of relationships. So was your kind of idea? And there's 21 basically separate sections, right? They're all numbered. And so was your idea with that kind of like, did you sit down and you were like, I kind of want, I want to explore like love or I want to explore relationships. And then you kind of, you worked from there or, or what was the genesis of that story? Thank you. Thank you first, Jonathan, for saying you liked that story in Avern Y6 and, yeah. uh, and for reading that whole book. I mean, that's very, very kind of you. You really read everything that I sent you. Thank you. Um, that it's, it's great to be asked a question like that. Um, but the genesis for that story was, um, you know, it's very similar to these about those list poems we were talking about where I, I wanted to write this. I'm always trying to write these well-mannered, like two third of a page, normal looking poems that I could send to Poetry Magazine or the Iowa Review or the New Yorker. And they would be like, what a good little poem that fits perfectly into this shape. And I never can do it. I mean, I think like I can write like 70,000 word short stories or one one-line tweets and like nothing in between <laughs> is really basically all I could do. So, um, so with this short story, you know, for, for several years, I had been trying to write a, a normal mannered like story about a couple, like, you know, a young person who's similar to me going through breakups, similar to me. Like I just couldn't get anything to work. It was always too super serious or boring or like, it was always some guy whining about his feelings, which was me, you know, <laughs> and I never, I just, I hated them all. And I probably wrote a hundred bad breakup stories that were trying to be real and trying to be like, get you by the heart and like, you know, make you feel what it was like to go through a breakup, you know, because mm -hmm. that was the only life experience I really, <laughs> I really had, or I, that felt big and epic enough to, or painful enough to be mm -hmm. worth, uh, mythologizing mm -hmm. so i after many frustrated attempts at that at some point i was just like fuck this i'm just gonna write i'm gonna write the worst i'm gonna on purpose i'm gonna write the worst possible short story and i'm it was all off the top of my head and so i was like here's two horrible <laughs> idiots and here's the dumbest thing you can possibly do and it was really that's the beginning of it and i wrote one and i was like oh that's kind of that's kind of funny Mm -hmm. uh, these people are really stupid. They're way, they're in way worse problems than I would ever have. Um, so uh, it just, it's, that was and it's like, you basically, life. yeah, you gave yourself the freedom to not like basically just be writing about yourself. And, 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 and in a way it was like, it was funny. Cause when I was reading that, especially in the beginning, I was kind of like, this is funny because I've heard the critique before of like my stories or other people's stories where they'll be like, Oh, the, you know, this isn't a story. This is like about a story, right? Because like, it's right. very rare to start a story with like two colossal idiots made this horrible decision. You know, it's got like, but, but it ends up 
you know, turning into a story, but it, it, it there's something liberating or there must have been just about being able to start a story like that, you know? It, it is liberating. And I, I would suggest anyone who's like struggle, who's struggled to write a, a quote, good short story. I think it's very, it was very valuable and um, fun to just say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to take one afternoon and I'm going to write, what is the worst short story possible? Like you still have to do all the things you would want to do in a story, people doing stuff, getting into trouble, saying weird stuff to each other, but like make it the worst and yeah. the most unrealistic possible. And I think it, yeah, it was, it was great. And th- then the problem became towards the end. I was like, how am I ending this thing? Like, I didn't know there's going to be 21. So I was like, okay, let's just put a number on it. And now there's a countdown. And so at some point the narrator's life starts becoming part of the story, but that was really kind of, I felt like I've always felt insecure about that story, but for that reason, it felt like I can just riff and be silly and make all these people have these horrible breakups, but what is it all going to build up to? Yeah. It's that same problem of like, how do you transcend irony? It just, you can't just riff ironically forever. It's, there's gotta be some kind of purpose or ending. Um, and that was my best attempt to like, create an emotional tug on the narrator's own who is this narrator who's telling us these breakup stories yeah it's always hard when you're having fun the stories that are hardest to end are the ones that you have the most fun writing I think like (laughs) because you're you're like I'm just having a great time and I'm not really sure um uh you know I was just doing this for fun so I don't really know what the (laughs) you know what the big reveal is going to be like what what lesson I'm going to teach you but yeah so I, I understand that struggle um but so Averne is your favorite story in the collection. The the so. bug story, right? I think you yeah, told me yeah. that in the email. You're like, you know, I think yeah. probably my favorite is is uh what did I say oh, yeah, that I was trying to get you to read if you only had time to read one or two. Okay. But what uh, it takes a lot of confidence I think to like put yourself in the perspective of of another being that is not a human. And uh and, and even if it's like allegorical or whatever. So what was that story like? Could you tell us a little bit about it? And was it was it also similarly like really fun to kind of um, write a story about bugs? That story began um, with uh, it was an attempt at a novel. I was going to write a novel about these bugs going on. Uh, there was like going to be this it was like the eve of a revolution. And they didn't really know that this revolution was happening. They're just getting drunk in this bar. And um, they're kind of like. They have normal friend drinking, socializing problems, and mm-hmm. then a war starts, and they have to escape, um, and then have this big adventure outside of the ant hill. It was very much inspired by a bug's life and ants. Um, <laughs> That's what I was thinking, but I didn't want to be like, was he inspired well, by ants? Certainly. I mean, I <laughs> I liked. I don't. I haven't seen those movies in many years, but I did love. I think I love. I, I think I liked ants the most, but I also liked a bug's life, but it seemed like another response to the problem of like, you know, I, I'm tired of trying to write about real people. I suck at it. I, I'm never going to be able to write about myself in any convincing way. What is something that is completely stupid and far away from that as possible that will kind of liberate me to just kind of have fun. And so I was like, you know, I loved ants and bugs life, but I haven't, I've never read a book about bugs. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's just try to do a novel that does that. And instead of being for children, these people will have real ass problems <laughs> that will be extreme. They will be extremely difficult problems. 
um, that are political and uh, mm-hmm. whatever addiction <laughs> addiction related. Um, so that was the genesis, and I you know probably spent six months cranking out thousands and thousands of words on this novel, and then I realized I don't really know what to do in a novel once I get out of the first act. Where I I didn't know how to plot the revolution and the counter revolution and like what are they going to do outside <laughs> the like, bug politics I don't yeah. want to just have them go you know find an Oreo cookie and then like I kept picturing Honey I Shrunk the Kids and I, I just got really lazy and I gave up on it but I I had this whole chunk of a first chapter that I thought mm-hmm. was like crackling um, and when um, I got the opportunity to make this book, I, I went through a lot of my bad opening openings of novels. And I, I found this one and I was like, I was like, I think I can end it. I think if I have the main character, well, I'm not going to reveal it, but yeah, I don't want to spoil it. But um, I had this idea of how to end it and make it a single story. And mm-hmm. it's still really long, but mm-hmm. um, that was sort of, it was the, the process of converting a failed novel into a short story which I think everyone should also try if you've got any. Yeah. You know, bank, bank material, maybe don't, don't delete, don't delete everything. You know, it's like, you never know when it'll, when it'll come back. So any, any novel, are you going to try to do a novel in the future or are you? Oh yeah. I'm always trying to do a novel. Yeah. uh, You know, it's like, I'm trying to do one right now. It's going well and they always are until I give up, but my, my mantra this time is like, I'm not giving up no matter what. I don't care if it takes 10 years. I'm not going to give up. Like I've given up on all the others. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always, I always have the same problem of uh, a com- the common problem of getting a new idea that seems like a much easier road and a much more better story and a much better whatever. And then I jump onto that and, you know, let this other thing wither. So I'm not doing that this time. But at some point, I, I'm sure I will have a novel. Who knows if anyone will publish it or what I will do with it. But mm-hmm. I'm not worried about that yet. Yeah, yeah, one thing at a time. Well, I, I will read it for sure. You've got a new fan. so Thank you, John. Um, yeah, it was great to have you on. And uh, I really did. I seriously, I learned a lot. It's so nice to be reminded sometimes to just like have fun. That like, is, it's, it's, fun is very good. important. It's, it's, you, you better have fun because uh, it's over before you know it. Yeah. If yeah. you can if you can still be a good person, that would be nice too. I mean, yeah. be more important, I would say, but, but fun sometimes. is hard. I think like, I think we spend so many, so many hours in front of our computers and I think I would have long ago quit if I hadn't tried, if I hadn't been able to find a way to make it fun for myself. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for sharing your work with me. And um, it's just a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's nice to meet you. And uh, again, I can't, I can't say enough how, how nice it is that, that you read everything that was sent and uh, clearly thoughtful and uh, ah. All right. Good night.